Hello and welcome to this debut episode of Midtown Conversations. It's a brand new season and we have a great series of of conversations for you this year. My name is Danielle DeVoe. I will be your host much of the time. I'll also be producing this season and I've decided to kind of frame our conversations as much as possible around our sense of place and spaces and some of those kind of cultural moments and and cultural conversations that, that I think it's really important to have right now as the region continues to grow and continues to change. So today my guest is Stephen Priest. Now, many of you will know Stephen as the president of the Grand River Jazz Society and also the man who dreamt of having a dedicated space for jazz in the region. And over 10 years ago, it seems like it was only yesterday, he managed to make that happen. So we're going to talk about how he got a cultural venue up and off the ground and and what kinds of great things happen in in that space and also more about just the general music scene and and what musicians need and and audiences need uh, to exist in this region to be able to continue enjoying enjoying the music that we we love so much. I'm also going to reach back into the archives for an interview with Mary Catherine Pisano. Now, Alison Dijak, the host of On the Scene, interviewed Mary Catherine last December ahead of her Jazz Room show, and I just thought it was a great conversation, and in it, Mary Catherine talks about some of the venues in town that she really loves, and I just thought it would be a timely recollection of of the impact that spaces have on musicians and, and the types of venues that are really important to them. So that is our show for today. Uh, thank you for joining me. Stay tuned for my interview with Stephen Priest. You are listening to Midtown Radio. My name is Danielle DeVoe, and my guest today is Stephen Priest. He is the president of the Grand River Jazz Society and the director of music at the Unitarian Church and a retired professor of entrepreneurship from Wilfrid Laurier University. Stephen, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here, Danielle. So I've been wanting to catch up with you for a while because of your role in um, maybe one of the more illustrious uh, performance venues in town, but we won't start there. We'll, we'll leave our listeners hanging. Um, before we get into that, you know, you've retired from Wilfrid Laurier University. Congratulations. Thank You're you. You're looking very tan and very it's relaxed. Right. <laughs> well, yeah, it's been a year, so I guess, yeah, the honeymoon's over. Um, but, you know, when, when, you were, um, when you were a scholar, you know, what kinds of things did you research? Yeah, the, uh, really the last 10 years, I was at Laurier for 30 years, but the last 10, 15 years I was studying uh, actually uh, arts management and arts entrepreneurship specifically. So I would was really interested in how do arts organizations uh, get started. Um, and yeah, I would study various aspects of, of the startup, getting funding, getting 
a team, getting uh, just uh, whatever it takes to get arts organizations off the ground because I just feel like they're so critical. So I had, I had kind of looked at entrepreneurship overall. I was teaching it, and then I thought, what I'm really passionate about is arts organizations. So yeah, dance, theater, music, opera, that kind of thing. And so, you know, it, over the course of your career working in this area, mm-hmm. it seems a silly question, what are some of the challenges? Because there are so many challenges. But, you know, what, 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 were the, what, were, what are the big challenges that you felt like intervening from an entrepreneurship perspective could, could help? Yeah. Oh, so when you say challenges, meaning... Like for arts organizations, for, for establishing, for continued yeah, uh, existence. I think it's really, really difficult, I think, for arts organizations to get funding. I mean, you're really kind of coming up with something that you're... It's a typically a passion project and getting other people excited about it. But just getting that initial funding, getting the things off the ground. So you're trying to raise money... But at the same time, you're trying to create something really cool that's going to cost a lot of money, and it's just about nearly impossible <laughs> to do all of that at the same time. It's just a crazy, crazy process. Um, yeah. And, and you know, artists being professionals, people trying to make a living as right. artists. When you add that to the overhead cost of just having an organization, and and. It still happens today. People kind of have this idea that, well, artists love what they do and they're yeah. passionate about it and maybe maybe they don't need to be paid. Maybe it can be their side hustle. Maybe it can be this thing that's yeah. not central to their life. But, I mean, certainly you've seen in, in the music industry, people who are professionals, the amount of focus that you can give your work when you're actually able to do it as a full-time professional it 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 makes the quality of work that you're producing is yeah. just so much better than when you're kind of, you know there there are great amateurs out there but it's it's a cruel thing to ask a very talented person to do no that's true and I you know we have this problem where we think everything should be free and everything should be available and so training people that they should go and pay a cover charge to hear music and to to pay artists an appropriate fee um there's just so many artists out there so many musicians and not enough clubs not enough venues that it becomes it can easily become exploitive as you say where you were just driving those those artists fees down and down and down and it's just not sustainable yeah so how did you get here you didn't grow up in kitchener waterloo yeah, it's a circuitous route. I was, um, I got my PhD at Ohio State, so I'm a dual citizen, and I was married at the time to a Canadian who brought, who dragged me up here. <laughs> dragged you kicking and screaming? Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know about the five to six month winters uh, when I signed on, but uh, no, it's really, um, it's really become home. I've been here 30 years, and it's just a, it's a great place to, um, to call home. But uh, no, I, it was really to come f- to teach at Wilfrid Laurier. I got a, I got a job out of university um, and um, it's been great, yeah. I mean, it's kind of in- an incredible thing about uh, working in post-secondary that I think most people don't understand. Mm-hmm. You don't get a say in where you go. 
It's one of these weird industries yep. where you kind of, you know, if, if, if the right job is in a place, that's the place that you are expected to go, which is also a cruel and punishing thing. It, yep. it works against uh, families <laughs> who have two academic households. It works against yeah. people with young children who don't want to up, up, uproot them. But yeah. yeah, but you, so you ended up just randomly in Waterloo. Pretty much. Places. I mean, my, uh, my spouse at the time was from Mississauga. So that was sort of a family link, but my whole family's on the West coast. So it is a little bit of a challenge, but you know, it's kind of like the old adage my dad would say is bloom where you're planted, <laughs> which is sort of, a, you know, I mean, it's kind of like, I think you're right. I've, uh, academia if you can get a job in academia and, and then it's it's you kind of take it I think where where you can get it uh, but it's a funny philosophical argument around where you where you play, career place and so on lifestyle but yeah no I I'm really happy here mm-hmm. despite the winter um yeah I would have to say. Do that. you ski? Have you, do you, have you taken I cross country ski and that's, you know, that's, there's some great stuff. There's great things around. There's things to do yeah. even in the cold. Yeah. I mean, and so one, I mean, I think this idea of like bloom where you're planted is quite uh, funny and, and, and also relevant to our larger conversation about um, spaces, art spaces for, for creatives and this mm. idea that um, people need spaces in which to bloom and there, there haven't, it hasn't always been accessible. And there's also, I mean, every, we can talk constantly. It's not new. People seem, uh, I think people experience it right now as, as new when there's a venue, a bunch of venues that have suddenly died off in the pandemic, but mm. venue atrophy, it has been an ongoing aspect of, of the music scene. I'm yeah. sure the entire time you have been here, but no, COVID was not good to us for live music venues. It's uh, yeah, that's mm-hmm. for sure. And so you founded a music venue um, mm-hmm. when what you founded the Jazz Room, or were one of the founders of the Jazz Room. Mm-hmm. So what? When? When did? When did the Jazz Room get its start? Okay, it was September 2011. So we're now entering our 13th season, which seems <laughs> hopefully <laughs> not uh, unlucky but no we're, th- we're seeing it as lucky 13 but no we started in 2011 um, I looked through some old emails and I had actually been thinking about percolating a jazz club venue for about 10 years uh, before it actually started so there were I had been kind of thinking about it I thought you know it'd be really neat um, to do and and um, I think my friends finally got tired of me talking about it and said look you gotta shut up or you gotta do something with this and uh, that sort of caused me to then step up and it was actually during a sabbatical from Laurier that kind of opened a bit of a window where I could really focus on digging in and um, and launching and we did it yeah we did a lot of kind of spade work before we actually launched so it was it was quite a quite a bit of time and preparation in uh, in advance of the September launch and you're in a great location uptown Waterloo how mm-hmm. did you secure that space yeah well it was funny because I remember getting on our bikes with some some buddies and kind of riding around town looking in windows and you know thinking what well, would be a good spot and 
actually before that I had been to Edmonton where there's a really awesome club and I came back with the the um, kind of the floor plan because I wanted to build this in Waterloo and it actually was in the tannery here um, talking to the uh, the developer and I said I need about 5,000 square feet and I want to build this out and he said well you're gonna how much money have we got? And I said, well, you know. And uh, he said, it's going to cost about 100 grand for you to just just get, you know, bare bones kind of build out. And I thought, ah, that's not going to work um, with an unproven sort of wacky idea. So we looked for possible shared space arrangements. So churches or community centers. And, and we're looking all around. And then finally... I think it was actually maybe having a beer on the patio at the Hoother Hotel. Um, they realized, have great, great beer, great beer. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a great spot. One of the best patios, too, I think, in the region. Um, and I realized kind of it was a gong-to-the-head moment where I realized there was this space that was significantly underutilized. So it was really basically empty. And it has a bit of a colorful past. There was, uh, they had strippers in there before. The lunchtime strippers. Yeah. <laughs> and um, that, yeah, I think that was obviously fell out of favor. And they tried karaoke and a few other things. But anyway, um, long story short, they, um, I realized this was an underutilized space. It's kind of a awkward space when, before we started working with it and but I poked my head in there and then thought, wow, this really has potential. So a lot of character, uh, exposed brick, the kind of this almost saloon style. And um, probably most importantly, there is also infrastructure for, you know, food service and beverage service. So um, we then kind of started to percolate around that and approach the, the owners of the Hoother Hotel and kind of one thing led to another. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a remarkable story, and I, I think people people feel really desperate for space. Do you think someone could do the same thing now? Do you think in the sort of 13 years that have passed, like there was a moment when in this area it was possible because it hadn't quite grown as much and there yeah. were maybe more gaps? It's interesting because it is, like you say, prime real estate. Um, I really think we potentially don't do enough with collaboration. I think there are spaces that have potential and that could be kind of jointly managed. I don't have anything specific, but I think we need to be a little more creative with our spaces. We don't have a lot. Um, I honestly, we lucked into this one. I mean, I think I, I'm not going to discount that. I don't, it's, it was a kind of a real serendipity. Um, but I do think often there could be opportunity, more opportunities than we necessarily take to, um, to kind of explore shared spaces, shared venues, um, where you can have a meeting, you can have a, a jointly kind of beneficial meeting. Um, I mean, for us, it's a clear kind of uh, partnership. They provide the venue to us without fee and then they get the food and beverage sales. So some people think they're getting a great deal. Oh, they are, you're bringing in all these people. And then other people think, oh, you're getting a great deal because you're not paying rent. So it's kind of one of those 50-50 kind of, uh, you both kind of uh, 
both win, both sides win. And um, yeah, I think, I, yeah, it's uh, at the same time, you're right. There are, it's hard to find spaces and we need more mm-hmm. for sure. Yeah, we have this kind of challenge, I think, in commercial spaces generally. Everyone who spends a lot of time downtown Kitchener or even uptown, you know, you walk through and you see vacants. And there are some Mm. vacants that have been really endemic, you know, that they just, they they never turn over, they never get filled, or they never never turn into something for long. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, as uh, from the outside looking in, you always feel like, well, commercial rents are just out of step with what people are able to afford right and you know and 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 there's there aren't that many owners Mm. um but i think you know this idea of having a a space a large um space a large building that already had a lot of other things going on Mm -hmm. and it was just like the right little niche niche thing for that definitely a a serendipity luck factor i'm gonna (laughs) lay that out there yeah. And all kinds of theories of entrepreneurship, <laughs> and all this, you know, like right. academic grounding. Right, it's, of course. Um, how did you, I mean, you talked uh, um, before, um, before the interview, you were t- um, sort of talking about the fact that it was a team, there were a bunch of people who were on board. How did you convince people, of, like other than your friends yelling at you and saying, you know, mm. stop, I, I don't want to hear about your dreams anymore, stop talking about it if you're not right. going to do something about them. Right. How did you get people on board? Yeah, you know, I it was initially some close friends. Uh, I'll admit that that were also passionate, and then um, and then it just sort of snowballed in terms of getting people a lot of arm twisting, kind of calling in favors. Um, but um, yeah, and finding people that were passionate about jazz music um, to build kind of that initial team and. You know, people, we've always had, it's funny, we've always had the ethic of really kind of doing stuff rather than just talking. So I think we built a culture that was really destined to kind of kick it upstairs and make it happen. But um, one thing that was important is kind of um, initially we went around and did a lot of spade work and consultations with people. And when I say consultations, that was a lot of wine drinking and <laughs> you know meeting with people and just saying, hey, what do you think about this? And got a lot of ideas and got people signed up. And one thing we did that came out of that process was the thinking about an annual pass. Um, and we actually sold 100 passes for $300 each before we even had a note played in the club. So there was a lot of kind of just finding people. We put it, we put, did a mock-up of what our season would be like and said, hey, you know, jump in. And so an annual pass gets you into the, all the shows for the entire year, and we still do that. And um, So, yeah, I think it was really a lot of kind of talk and, talking things up, getting reaching out to different artists, different um, potential audience members, and ultimately some sponsors. Um, and then the um, Arts Fund was also a really important kind of initial source. So it came from a lot of different sources. Um, I did have a colleague that was initially um, said she would uh, basically backstop this effort to $20,000. and. You know, I was like, okay, at that point it was like, go, because I thought, okay, it's not going to be coming out of my kid's university fund. 
Um, and the funny thing is we never actually tapped that. So she said, you know, if, if, if you lose 20,000 in the first year, uh, we'll backstop you. So yeah, it was, I guess that's kind of an angel scenario where you've got people that uh, step up and, um, and kind of give you that backstop and then you, you just get that momentum going and, and eventually, yeah, I called in favors. I got a friend to do a website and I got uh, one of the hotshot designers to do a logo and, you know, just a lot of freebies coming in and kind of arm twisting and it's, it's making me exhausted just thinking about mm -hmm. it right now. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, so it was a quite a process, but it's interesting. I think if, if people put a bold kind of, what I think is a cool idea, it's interesting how people will pile in. I just, um, it's really heartwarming in some ways to think about how you just get a vision and then people can, people get excited. It's, it's, and that's what happened. You know, so as to the question of why jazz, did you want a jazz club because you like jazz or did you see in the community that there was an absence, there, there was a jazz scene and there was an absence of space for jazz? I would say both of those. I mean, I'm, I've been a jazz fan ever since I was, I play the piano and I do a lot of, I, I love the art form. Uh, so it's, it's maybe a bit selfish. I was tired of traveling to Toronto and, um, but it similarly, you know, it, it's funny cause at this, uh, almost the same time, there were two major clubs in Toronto that closed. Um, and when I told people we're going to open a jazz club, they go, you got rocks in your head. Like, yeah, this is stupid. Jazz is dead. Nobody likes this music. Too many notes, too many chords, all this stuff. And, you know, I thought, um, no, that's not true. So we have the Jazz Festival, which has, you know, always attracted, I think, a pretty decent audience here. And there were a few different venues, the Registry Theater, um, the Black Hole Bistro used to uh, do jazz, a jazz series, and they would always sell out like that. So I, I thought, you know, there's, there's quite a bit of evidence that there's an audience. Um, and I was convinced that it really required the appropriate, if you want to get to the entrepreneurship side, the appropriate kind of business model that would make it sustainable. Um, and so, yeah, I would say both, both sides, selfish, self-interest, and then also I think there was enough, enough signals in the community that, yeah, there is an audience somehow. And, and it's sort of one of those, it's a great size room. It's mm. not the scale that you were originally imagining, it mm. sounds like. You mm. wanted something uh, bigger. But it, you know, we actually kind of lack in this community for, for spaces of that scale that mm. you can have that really interesting, intimate uh, music experience. Yeah. Uh, and so it, it filled a gap, but it's also, it's also unique in that it is... Um, it's a listening venue. Can mm. you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I've, in my work as a professor and then also my own interest, I did a lot of travel uh, conferences and just, uh, and I think I've probably been to maybe a hundred different jazz clubs around the world. <laughs> so it's kind of an obsession, I've, you know, in Tokyo or in Finland or whatever, I always go in and see what clubs are like. And it's there's always this tension around talkers versus listeners with jazz. I mean, in some ways, um, you know, it's a lively art form that you think, okay, well, people, you know, it's sort of just, that's kind of ridiculous. 
to have this no talk policy. Um, but it's also a, a very kind of, it can be a very subtle and kind of important art form that people want to listen to. Um, and we're charged, you know, we charge 20 or $25 to have people come and people come to hear the music. And I think that's the common denominator for our audience. We get, I mean, we, we laugh about ages nine to 99 is kind of our demographic. Uh, but the common denominator is people love the music and they want to hear the music. So, you know, the idea of sitting next to a table where some, a big booming voice is talking about their latest trip to Florida or something, it just doesn't work. And, you know, there's this subtle music happening. So, yeah, we have um, a listening, we call it a listening venue. And we really enforce that, and it's it's pissed a lot of people off. Honestly, people will come and they, what are you telling me to be quiet? And there's this shushing, and but um, I think now it really isn't a problem. We've or an issue. We've we've really trained people, or they know what to expect. Um, so yeah, it it really has a respect for the music. Um, it's not that it's sort of a library, soft, kind of quiet. It's people are really engaged, and in, jazz has a tradition of kind of uh, acknowledging soloists, and there's there's clapping and hooting and hollering and that kind of thing. So it's a it's more of an engaged kind of listening atmosphere, but it's certainly not um, just sort of church quiet. Um, and the interesting thing, if you talk to musicians that come and play they definitely appreciate the fact that people are there to hear their music and they always bring their a-game to the jazz room i mean they know it's a it's a great venue where people respect the music where they're respected where they're paid typically far more than they get typically at toronto clubs um and it's just they just love their there's a lineup a mile long of musicians that want to play it's just a really good positive kind of experience for audience and musician. And well, and I think this, it's such an important point because it, it is, I mean, there are a lot of musicians in this town who are at that level where they're trying to make a go of it. Mm -hmm. They're really dependent on the sort of bar scene, the mm -hmm. Friday night, Saturday night shows at the various pubs yeah. and breweries around town. Yeah. But that can be a really demoralizing experience yeah. because the people who are there, they're getting rowdier, they're yeah. getting drunker as the night goes yeah. on, they're not necessarily listening to the band. Right. Um, and you know, and so if you're if you're the musician up there just playing to a room of of, of people yeah. talking amongst themselves yeah there's something really uh demoralizing night after night yeah. of, of having to do that no i couldn't agree more and i think often jazz has this kind of wallpaper uh tradition of tucking the jazz band in the corner and it's really kind of really background music and it's yeah it's it's um uh, it our experience is very different it's a very much a a listening venue and and like I say we hope we're our aspiration is to always bring music that's actually worth listening to to so that you're you're riveted by what's going on on stage and so the jazz room has a um, kind of fall season mm -hmm. um, that has launched you want to talk about some of the things that you're excited for coming up in in October and November yeah I mean there's there's a there's a lot. We've actually got some really interesting. Um, I mean, uh, there's always our 
uh, I guess we'll, we'll call local uh, local performers. And we've from the beginning we tr- we've had a rough aspiration to have about half the artists be local. So we didn't want it to just be, you know, touring artists and big shots from elsewhere from Toronto and elsewhere we wanted to really have this feel like it was a home for our local artists and local being the most sort of positive uh, meaning of that word that these are the people that live with us that are hopefully um, you know inspired to stay Um, so yeah we have and that's been one of the really cool parts of I think this project is seeing how many amazing artists I didn't when we said we'd like to have roughly half I didn't know that we would have enough honestly I thought I knew of some bands and they were great but I I it just has blown me away to see the level of talent so we've got artists that there's a lot of artists uh, there's um, Dave Thompson is an example he's one of the great guitarists in the country he lives in our community he plays at Stratford. We've got a lot of musicians in our community that, that perform at Stratford. It's kind of their day gig. Um, Larry Larson's another one that's uh, coming up. Um, he was the principal trumpet with the symphony, but he's a great jazz player too. Um, so we've got some really amazing local talent um, that is pretty much on the, you know, on a on a regular rotation. Um, and typically we'll give, bands will get probably one show a year. So we don't really repeat within a year, uh, typically. So yeah, I mean, it's, um, I, I, I could go down the list. It's just an, an incredible, um, I think we've, we've gotten to the point where we really attract some of the best talent that's touring, uh, as well as kind of a huge well of, of talent from Toronto. Um, and uh, yeah, so it's, I think it's a great mix. Um, it is nice having our region on the stop. Yeah. That, there, that, that it is now a place where if you are touring around as a jazz musician, mm-hmm. this is one of the places you stop at. You're not just going to Montreal, you're not just going to Toronto. Absolutely, and, and we're one of the main, we are definitely a main kind of hub uh, in, a, in addition to Montreal, yeah, like you say, Montreal, Toronto, Ottawa. I mean, and, you know, so the, the jazz room is focused on jazz, mm-hmm. but you also make the space available to mm. other artists in the community. And it is it is a space where individual artists can book their own shows and, mm. and benefit from having that space and being able to sell tickets and, and perform in a acoustically very beautiful space mm. um, and sort of on their own terms and not having to contend with the bar scene or sort of mm-hmm. some of the other barriers to access that some of the other venues have. So can you talk a little bit about what, how did that come about? How, how beyond the, the kind of jazz programming that you do? Um, yeah, I mean, it, I think one of our, we, we got uh, Trillium funding to buy the piano and we've, you know, we, we, we really, and we get government funding from all levels of government. So the Depart- Federal Department of Heritage uh, the Ontario Arts Council and the City of Waterloo all contribute. Um, so we do see kind of a community mandate um, out of, and again, one of the goals that we had from the start is to make the, we kind of hog the Friday, Saturday sweet spot, but that leaves five other nights of the week that 
a lot of musicians have stepped in and and done very well in um, promoting their own shows. So that's possible, and it it's a it's an incre it's top of the line instruments, sound, lights, equipment, and a sound person can be, and all of that can be available for three hundred dollars, which is absolutely amazing. So if somebody comes in and charges $20, $30 for cover, and if they can see, pack the place at 140, you can do the math. It's a pretty amazing kind of um, arrangement. Yeah, and um, I mean, we were talking a little bit earlier about Danny Michelle. He's doing every Monday in September. He's done it before. Um, I mean, obviously kind of a big name in the singer-songwriter, but um, we've had a lot of groups that come in and do it. I, I, I keep pushing. I you know, one of the things we wanted to, to kind of push it out and make it a community resource in that way. Um, and yeah, I think there's, there's certainly room for more of that. Yeah. And I mean, and hopefully we're looking, I think there are a lot of underutilized spaces mm. all, all over the region and, yeah. and there's often funding for spaces and, mm. but, but then the programming bit sometimes gets lost and sometimes there are barriers. Now, obviously when a, a facility is city owned, yeah. there are kind of barriers. You can't just kind of hand over the keys and open it up and hope for the best. But, yeah. but I do think this model of, of, of combining programming to make mm. sure that spaces are being leveraged yeah. is a really, a really inspirational one. Yeah. I, yeah, I hope, I, I mean, it still requires a lot of, uh, financial support to get, you know, I'm a real stickler for good sound, good lighting. You go to a show and it's kind of a bit half-baked and the sound's bad. You, you know, it's just not a good experience and people aren't going to pay for that. Um, so I think there's a role, I really think there's a role for a government to help support. Like we could, we really couldn't do this without our government support and we have corporate sponsors and so it's not just ticket prices that are, you know, keeping this afloat. Like we've got a diverse kind of funding model. Um, and again, I think people need to really realize they need to pay to, um, to access and to be able to pay artists properly. So, you know, maybe that 25, 30, $40 cover is, uh, you know, you pay, pay that willingly. I mean, we're all, crunched with with inflation and everything else and raising families and but you know that one night of the week when you go out and you have that really special time and you hear great music i think it's we need to acknowledge the value of that mm -hmm. getting back out amongst the people yes yeah no, <laughs> and having those experiences yeah um well, I, I mean, I feel bad even asking this question mm. because I don't want to uh, end on, I'll try and come up with another question so that um, we we'll end <laughs> on a high note, note. <laughs> but, but you know, what are the gaps? Like, what are the challenges that you still see? Um, yeah, I guess um, for us, it's kind of keeping momentum. I mean, right now it feels like kind of a well-oiled machine. We've done it for 13 years. Um, but keeping that spark, that kind of newness, um, always getting the word out and embracing, you know, I'm a bit old school um, in terms of my perspectives, but 
embracing new media and, and social media and that kind of thing. To, and, and I would say attracting younger audiences. I think um, jazz has a, has a uh, perception that it's kind of an old person's art form, but um, we try to bring in music that, you know, we're doing a couple of, we're, we, we're doing a, a kind of a soul funk R&B sort of mini series within our series. So we're trying to have it not be too stuffy and help and uh, attract maybe a little bit of a younger audience. But right now our audience is about maybe 20%, 20, 25% under 30. So it's, you know, we're, I think, uh, but that's an important one. Um, maintaining diversity. Um, so recognizing the, you know, the multicultural environment that we live in the country we live in and being able to represent that and to have that be you know properly reflected and attracting those audiences I think those would be those are the kind of challenges we we continually want to address and keep keep going um and do you see do you see the jazz room playing a role in terms of sort of maybe mentoring that next generation of young young jazz musicians you know are you are you hopeful that that this region is going to be fostering growth of young musicians in this in this area yeah no i think for sure in fact we've we've actually had some success with that where there have been artists that have cut their teeth really at the jazz room and then gone on and they're now even a-list players in toronto so We've seen that in kind of the nurturing, and we've got jam sessions that we're doing. We just uh, increased to twice a month now, and that gives people opportunities to just get on stage and play, so that's kind of a, a cool thing. But we're always looking for opportunities for that emerging artist. Um, whenever it's, you know, they show s signs that they're on, they're ready for kind of the headline uh, you know, sort of spotlight, uh, I'll be the first one to sign them, to get them, you know, get that started. So, yeah, I think we always need to refresh. Um, it can't just be kind of the same old group of, of kind of virtuosos, for sure. And was there anyone, this will be my last question, is there anyone that, that was on your bucket list that you really wanted to see or you really wanted to book that you booked? Or is there someone that's still out there that you haven't gotten yet? You know, one of the great uh, players that I just always, I was just a super fan, uh, was a trumpet player named Guido Basso. And um, he recently passed away, actually, uh, which was kind of sad. But we actually finally got him to come and play. He was, he was basically retired, but he kind of came out of retirement to come and play. And I think that moment was just kind of like, okay, I can... I can uh, I can go to go to jazz heaven now. <laughs> I think uh, bask in the glory of your accomplishments. Yeah, I mean it's, uh, but it's yeah. I mean it's kind of funny because it's a nonstop uh, kind of list of wow. Wouldn't it be great to have X? And um, it's we're really at the level where it's not crazy to to kind of envision a scenario where you could get a you know some. I don't know if we'd get Wynton Marsalis or you know Diana Krall, but the next level under that is is certainly attainable. Mm -hmm. 
Well, congratulations on all of your success with the Jazz Room. It is such a special venue, and I'm very glad it exists in this region. And it, it did fill the gap, not just for jazz, but for a lot of um, different genres of music as a, as a great space for performers to work in. Yeah, thank you very much, Danielle. It's been a pleasure. My guest today was Stephen Priest. He is president of the Grand River Jazz Society, director of music at the Unitarian Church, a retired professor of entrepreneurship from Wilfrid Laurier University, and most importantly, one of the founders of the Jazz Room in our region. You're listening to Midtown Radio. My name is Danielle DeVoe, and we will be right back after this song from Top Pocket called Jammin' at the Jazz Room.
That was Top Pocket with Jammin' at the Jazz Room. Earlier this hour, you heard my conversation with Stephen Priest, who was one of the founders of the Jazz Room and is the current president of the Grand River Jazz Society. For the last 10 minutes of the show, I thought it would be fun to go back into the archives and hear from one of the musicians who plays at the Jazz Room. Mary Catherine Pisano has been playing a Christmas show at the Jazz Room in December for a while now, and we caught up with her last December ahead of her 2022 show. And if you check the Jazz Room schedule, you'll see that she will be back again this December. Here is Alison Dijak's conversation with Mary Catherine Pisano. Um, so let's dive into your music a little bit. Uh, so you went to the University of Waterloo for music. Was that sort of always your plan growing up? Like, did you know you wanted to study music professionally? Yeah, it's this strange thing of it almost didn't even seem like an option. It was just that, yeah, I'm going to go to school for music and mm -hmm. that's going to be what happens. There was never any plan B of what else I would study or any other thought that entered into my mind. It was like, yeah, you're going to go to school for music. Yes. <laughs> so that was kind of the plan all along for sure. And University of Waterloo was a great program for me because um, I kind of wanted to stay local, but I didn't necessarily want to go through an opera program. Mm -hmm. So University of Waterloo offered the classical training, but I still got to take some drama classes and explore some other parts of my voice at the same time too. So I really enjoyed that experience for sure. Definitely. Yeah. So you now are performing as, as a jazz singer. Were you able to, um, were you sort of working on that when you were in school or was it sort of a, a passion on the side where it was like, okay, I'm getting this classical training, but I, I'm exploring jazz songs and jazz techniques, uh, sort of outside of that. How did that sort of come about? Yeah, exactly. It was that kind of situation of I'm really enjoying this classical training, but my heart has always been with jazz. It's the music that I listened to growing up and that I always felt in my heart was what I wanted to be singing. It's not exactly what naturally came out of my voice at first. <laughs> I was this soprano singer who grew up in choirs and mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, what are you talking about? You want to be a jazz singer. People would kind of say that to me, like, that doesn't make sense. You're a yeah. soprano who sings super high. <laughs> but um, <laughs> so I kind of had to earn my stripes and relearn how to sing in that technique and mm -hmm. take, take songs down some keys and that kind of thing. But I knew that that's where my heart was and what I wanted to be doing. And my voice teacher was great about that. She kind of, I think, knew that, you know, she let me do some musical theater pieces. And mm -hmm. I, at my grad recital, I did a jazz song and like no one else ever did that. They were all doing like the Mozart and the, yeah. you know, the Schubert. So uh, it was great. I had some support all along that journey for sure. Yeah, that's so, so special. Um, so then after graduation, um, were you finding that you were able to pursue music full time or was it sort of like a balancing act of maybe like a non-related music day job and then gigging and performing in the evenings? Like it can be incredibly difficult to become a working musician sort of right out of, of school. Well, and you know, because I know your brother. So yes. <laughs> you have one close to you who's mm -hmm. like one of us. Um, yeah, you know, I I did go to teacher's college. Mm -hmm. That was kind of, but I, 
was like, <laughs> I feel like I'm always the outcast. I was the one student at teacher's college who didn't want a job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, wa I was pursuing it for the sole purpose of having a side gig mm -hmm. to have some income while I built up doing music full time. So I did do that. And I worked for a few years just doing supply teaching mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, going into music classes when I could, cause that was, I enjoyed doing that a lot. Yeah. Um, and then slowly transitioning out of that into the full-time musicing thing as my private studio grew and as the gigs started to come in more and all that stuff. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It's really quite an incredible accomplishment to be able to be a, a working musician full-time, uh, what what is some advice that you might give to someone that is wanting to pursue music and find a way to make that um you know their regular gig if you feel like you want to be a full-time musician you will find a way to do it i think there's always mm -hmm. a way to work towards that i would say a, a working artist doesn't have to be doing just music all the time right like you mm -hmm. can be working on something else and working another job and still call yourself an artist and find a way to balance it and slowly kind of move away maybe from what you're doing primarily. It is hard. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to, you know, sugarcoat it and say this, Oh, it's so much fun. And if you're doing what you love, you won't work a day in your life. I don't believe that phrase at all. I feel like I work really hard <laughs> yeah. and it feels like work. It does not feel like fun all the time, but, um, you know, at the same time, I think the people that I know who are making it work can't really imagine doing something else. So they find mm -hmm. a way to do it. And if your passion is that strong and you're working on your art and you're working on continually improving yourself and putting yourself out there and, you know, making those connections, you'll find a way to make it happen. Wonderful. Yeah. And you, you certainly have done that yourself. I see that you're playing a, a ton of, of local shows regularly, playing at the Jazz Room, of course, Lana's Lounge, performing with the KW Symphony, um, and then some places, you know, outside of the Kitchener-Waterloo area as well. Um, what's been one of your favorite places to perform at over the years? Uh, I know the Jazz Room is definitely that holiday favorite. Has there been another venue that sort of stood out for you? I mean, locally, the Jazz Room is just such a great space. It's always been a great space. It really values musicians and is such a supportive venue for both our local community and the just the North American jazz scene, to be honest. We get amazing acts mm -hmm. coming through that space. So I would say that and the Registry Theatre in Kitchener are my favorites. Um, mm. The director of programming at the Registry, Lawrence McNaught, is a huge, amazing champion of the arts. And he was one of the first people to, you know, when you're sending out all those emails and trying to network and, you know, you're thinking no one's ever going to reply to this, like, you know, and <laughs> yeah. he was one of the first people I was just wrapping up teacher's college and kind of looking to reroute again and, you know, get going on the gigging circuit. And he was one of the first people to respond and offer me a job. And I'll never forget that. And he continues to be just such uh, a beacon of light in this community for established musicians and for up and coming musicians and, and artists of all kinds, actors, you know, everything, you name it. He's amazing. And that space is a really lovely, intimate theater too. We're so mm -hmm. lucky to have that space. So I'd say those yeah. two, 
but um, probably my all-time favorite was when I got to go to New York City and perform um, off-Broadway, technically. We were on at... Um, wow. Yeah, at this venue called Symphony Space, which was so funny mm-hmm. because I got married in New York and our hotel was right across the street from this venue, and I thought, oh, that'd be fun to play there one day, thinking that's <laughs> never going to happen. And then two years later, this gig came up, and where was it? At Symphony Space wow. <laughs> across the street. Uh. So... That's just one of those moments where you're like, life is pretty cool sometimes. (laughs) Yeah, 100%. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and yeah, fantastic places to perform locally. And and it's amazing that you've been able to to travel as well and do some of those shows, share your music with, uh, with people across the country and across the continent. That was Alison Dijak's conversation with Mary Catherine Pisano that I pulled from the archives. You also heard my interview with Stephen Priest, founder of The Jazz Room. Now, Mary Catherine talked about two of her favorite local venues in town, and I think it's worth reinforcing that they both have excellent music programming coming up this season. So the Jazz Room has released its fall season, and you can go to kwjazzroom.com to see more from them. And the Registry Theatre has just announced a whole slate of of new programmers uh, that are, are helping them with their music. So of course, Mary Catherine mentioned Lawrence McNaught. He's the director of programming at the registry, but they also have Jack Cole programming Folk Night. They have Ben Rolo programming their Homegrown series. Andy McPherson is programming Jazz. And Ted Harms is programming silent the silent film Harmonic. So a lot of interesting music in Kitchener and in Waterloo at these two really special venues and do go check them out you can find out more about programming at the registry at registrytheater.com thank you so much for joining me this week and thank you for Stephen Priest to make for making the time to sit down with me you might have noticed we also have new theme music you can now hear Junate every week on the program and this is Junate's song Locanita which I thought was a perfect fit for a program about spaces and places and the community in which we live. You can hear Midtown Conversations every Saturday and Sunday at 11 a.m. And this year, Midtown Conversations is being brought to you with generous sponsorship from the Grand Valley Construction Association. So thank you for making these conversations possible. My name is Danielle DeVoe. And I hope you tune in next week for more great community conversations here on Midtown Radio.